อันนี้หนึ่งแล้วดัมมาฟอร์ทไนท์เอสอับบอทเพอร์เวอร์ชั่นไม่ต้องการคำที่ดีขึ้นแต่มันเป็นคำที่น่าสนใจที่จะพูดถึงนั่นคืองานฉันไม่จะบอกคุณว่าอะไรคือความผิดฉันอยากจะพูดถึงปัญหาของการมองสิ่งที่ผิดของการมองไม่รู้ชื่อเทอร์มโนโลยีของคำว่าผิดแต่รู้ว่าใช้ในการใช้ชื่อ What it means, basically. What it means to those who use it. It's used a lot by religious people. We have some idea of what's normal, and that which is not normal, we call perverse. And of course, it goes deeper than that. We have the idea of a divine order. A divine sort of normal, and what falls outside of that, we call perverse. And that which we see as perverse is something one should feel guilty about, feel bad about, hate oneself, a very loathe. This idea of Love the sinner, hate the sin. Sins are evil, perverse. So I, I think we have to separate two things here. Something can be perverse, but for something, of course, to be perverse, there has to be. Something, some, some reason, some benchmark or, or measure stick by which we, some normal. How could we say that something's normal? We have to figure that out first before we can call something perverse. But then we could call something perverse. But the and the other side is what it means to us. When something is perverse, and so I think we we generally tend to agree that, well, in Buddhism anyway, that hating yourself because of something that we might agree on as being perverse. Is actually perverse. It's very wrong and and twisted. Perverse is like twisted, crooked, messed up. It's messed up to hate yourself because you're perverse, because you have perversion, because you're a pervert. We have this word pervert. It's usually related to sexual things. People call homosexuals perverts. Of course, a lot of people call most people, I think, call pedophiles perverts, perverse. Someone who is overly sexual, people might call them pervert. Sometimes we use it jokingly. 
we see that hating ourselves or hating other people who are, according to some measure or other, perverted, it's not useful. So, for, what this means for meditators, as a meditator, is that anything you might conceive of, believe to be, or even come to see clearly as being perverse in some way, should not then become a, a, a source of self-hatred or loathing or guilt. You should recognize that it's, it's just messed up. I think messed up in the colloquial usage is a little more palatable here. But we're talking about something that is messed up, something that is uh, skewed, something that is not quite right. In, in the Buddhist tradition, to sort of help clarify what exactly sorts of things we're talking about. We have three kinds of perversion based on three kinds of mental activity. And so the word for perversion or, or that I'm translating here as perversion is vipalasa. We, of course, means outside or kind of could be like twisted or skewed. Vipalasa means some mental activity that is skewed. Sanya vipalasa, per perversion of uh, perception. Citta uh, vipalasa, perversion of thought and titi vipalasa, perversion of view. Perception, thought, and view, these are the three sorts of perversions. And what, what would it mean for a, a perception? What's the, what's the quality of a perverse thought? So we're not dealing with what God thinks is perverse or even what the Buddha thinks is perverse or what some divine order says is perverse. Now, perversion in Buddhism is something that is, you could say, internally inconsistent. It's perverse because it just doesn't make sense. If I were to say, I, every day I push a boulder up a, up a mountain, and then every night it falls back down to the bottom, and then every day I push it up again. Right, the myth, myth of Sisyphus, it's a Greek myth, in Greek mythology. I would say, if I were to say to myself, that's valuable work. There's some benefit to that, right? That's the sort of perversion we're talking about, that we, we do all, all the time. Not so glaringly obvious, perhaps, but 
I engage in a lot of activity that doesn't end up bringing any benefit, and then we say it brings benefit, well that's messed up. That's perverse. And perverse isn't probably the right word, I just don't have a better one. It's certainly messed up. I, mean, I think my, my use of the word perversion here is to clarify that in Buddhism we don't look at things quite that way in terms of feeling guilty or bad. We just see it as messed up, kind of deluded or delusional. So sanya vipalasa is some kind of perception. You see, you experience something, and the way you you filter it, the way you uh, react to it, is messed up. Jitta vipalasa is you have some thoughts that arise about it, and those thoughts are messed up. And titi uh, vipalasa is you have a view about it, a belief about something, and that's messed up. Okay, so those are the categories. I haven't yet got into what sorts of things are are perverse, and and we have four of them. So now we start to see what sorts of things are perverse in Buddhism and how we re relate to how we look at perversion. The first one is uh, Subha Vipalasa. Perversion of beauty. And the second one is Sukhavipalasa, perversion of happiness. Third is Nichavipalasa, perversion of permanence. And the fourth is Attavipalasa, perversion of self. So you see, this is where language actually gets us in a little bit of trouble because we're basically going to say that beauty really is a perversion, right? You're a pervert if you think something is beautiful. So that's not quite right. The word perversion probably doesn't apply, but using the word allows us to see how Buddhism looks at things a little differently. Finding something beautiful is, is mixed up. It's a, it's a misperception. When you experience, when you see something, your perception that that's beautiful is arbitrary. And not only arbitrary, but problematic. It's a very difficult one. I think here's where we get in a little bit of trouble with um, with pop, pop, uh, with mainstream audience. I'm not going to, can't really sugarcoat this, except to say that it's not that beauty is evil, it's that reality is something deeper than, than beauty. 
we have a lot of trouble in the beginning with enjoying experiences and relishing, appreciating. Trouble in the, in the sense that it's hard to it's hard to let go of, and there's a very strong mis misconception that somehow there's some value to to physical beauty. I, mean, I think you could argue that there is mental beauty, but that's of course I mean, it's not not exactly beautiful. But we could say, and we do say that, like wisdom is beautiful and mindfulness is beautiful, love is beautiful. But to say that a flower is beautiful is a misperception. It's a it's a an extrapolation. Why is a why is a flower beautiful and a pile of dog feces is not beautiful? Why is the human body beautiful? But a pig body is not beautiful in the same way, right? Really where it, it, it gets fairly perverse, and more intensely perverse is when it comes to sexuality, of course. And, and it's perverse only in the Buddhist sense, not in a shameful, guilty sort of way. Why do we find the physical body attractive? Why do some of us find a certain physical body attractive? Right? For, for the most part, Male humans find female humans physically beautiful, attractive, for the most part. Female women and female humans find male humans physically attractive. Why? What we mean by, by mixed up is seeing something that isn't there and getting caught up in problematic states. Right? When you see something as beautiful, it's not just like seeing something as tall. It's not like saying, well, the Eiffel Tower is tall. That's quite innocuous. You could say, well, that's seeing something that isn't there, but you know, there's a problem with seeing and the Eiffel Tower is beautiful, for example. Or, well, that's a little bit abstract, but seeing a human body is beautiful. It's fairly intensely perverse because it really has nothing to do with the physical body at all. The, the physical body is, is actually quite putrid, smelly, leaking all the time. There's nine holes in the body. But that's not, that's not the point. It's not the point of arguing whether the human body is ugly or beautiful. It's just pointing out the fact that it's just based on a very intense addiction, attachment that we build up lifetime after lifetime. There's no diamonds or rubies or gold 
There's nothing that even we normally otherwise think of as beautiful. There's nothing objectively beautiful about the human body, full of fat and pus and blood and, and so on. And so we perceive the human body as being beautiful. Take it as the, mo the best example, because it's very clear. Then we think of it, you know, many people hearing this are probably thinking to themselves, well, the human body is beautiful, and they'll have all these thoughts about it. So those thoughts arise, that's, well, that's messed up. <laughs> I, I say it's messed up. Uh, of course, there's a disagreement. But then it becomes views. So you might say, well, yeah, that's your view and your belief. And you say, but I believe. And when you say, I believe, well, that's giti. I believe the body is truly, the human body is truly beautiful. I believe it was created in God's image. I believe it is divine. It is my temple. Many things people say about the body. So, the teaching here is not to theorize. I'm theorizing with you, and I don't want to mislead you there. I'm laying this out because this is meant to be practical advice for, for meditators. Not for you to believe what I'm saying, but for you to be able to pinpoint what's going on in your mind. Subhavipalasa, the first one, beauty. How do you how do you how do you see the way in which you misunderstand the body uh, the beauty mindfulness of the body right, we have these four satipatthana the four foundations of mindfulness they say in the commentaries that the Buddha taught the four satipatthana in order to counter these four perversions these four misunderstandings. So one of the things you're going to see, and one of the things that you should keep an eye out for, is how your your observation and clarity about the body changes the way you look at the physical reality, changes how you look at things like beauty and so on. Whereas instead of thinking that there's some value to to beauty, to what, whatever it is that you see as beautiful. To come to see that it's actually, why, it's, or why beauty is in the eye of the beholder is because it's arbitrary. And it's based much more on our addictions to brain chemicals than to anything intrinsic in the, in the, the object. When you focus on the body, you'll see really just how disgusting the body is. And, and, and it's not even so important that you see it's disgusting, but you will. And that kind of puts things in perspective where you say, well, in, what, in what sense is this beautiful? I mean, in what sense is it disgusting, really? It's neither nor, it's just experience. But we see we're out of whack. We see certain things as beautiful and certain other things as disgusting. And there's no rhyme and re or reason to it. We have no reason to think the body is objectively beautiful. I think you could make a fairly solid argument that 
pure gold is beautiful or a diamond is beautiful. I think there's a better argument there. I mean, even still, you could break it down and say that's ridiculous. There's nothing beautiful about a diamond. But even us, even, even ordinary individuals who haven't practiced meditation, are, are, are just messed up in thinking that the body is somehow beautiful because at the same time we're, we're, we're fastidious about cleaning the body, erasing any trace of the nature of the body which is smelly and ugly and, and sticky and gooey and sickly and aging, you know, how, how hard we work to get rid of wrinkles and stains on our teeth and so on the oils in our hair, the flakes of skin on our body, how we rub and scrape and all the beauty products we use to cover up the body. Well, when you're mindful, one of the things you'll see, I mean, it's a great relief really, the relief of um, being obsessed with the body, having to work so hard to possess the beauty of well the beauty of a of a romantic partner or even your own physical beauty when you look in the mirror or a beautiful sights like flowers or pictures or beautiful sounds even so that's the first Perversion or mis misperception. You know? What are we? What are, what are we going to use? So first, vipalasa. Messed up. And the second one, sukha vipalasa. Well, this is where we we practice vedana. When we practice vedana, nupasana, mindfulness of feelings. Sukha vipalasa is the misperception of or the mis conception of things as happiness. Happiness is a challenging word. I think it's beauty is challenging. I think maybe happiness is even more challenging. What does happiness mean? What are we referring to when we say happiness? I think it's more clear to people to, to people who don't see so clearly. We might not be able to articulate what happiness is, but have a good idea of it. And they will all, many people will tell you they've experienced happiness from time to time. But you come to see through that in meditation. You, you see, well, that's actually a little bit inaccurate. That those experiences were not actually anything very special. They're fraught with addiction, attachment, craving, clinging, and stress even. You start to see there's a lot of stress tied up in our seeking out of pleasure. It's ultimately pleasure. Sukha here, it's at least meant to point out the the mis the mistaking of pleasure for happiness. Because what do we mean when we say happiness? What do we mean? Do we mean these pleasant feelings that come and go? 
when you say to yourself, happy, happy, or calm, calm. Just like when you focus on the body, you start to see clearly it's just body, it's not beautiful or ugly or anything. Any attachment or clinging, craving for the body is gone. The same when you say pain, pain, or happy, happy, or calm, calm, when you focus on the feelings, you lose any sense that one is better than the other. Of course, that, it takes time, but there's clearly a path there. You start to see how your mind differentiates less. It's less pushed and pulled. I mean, it's not that you become a zombie, not at all. It's not that you become, you know, like everything is just gray, not at all. Everything has colors, but they're just colors. They are what they are rather than pushing and pulling you. What, what, what good is there in disliking unpleasant feelings? Is there a good in it? Maybe someone would think there is. Yes, because then you can avoid them, which is really a tautology. So it's, I mean, it's circular reasoning. What's wrong with it? And what's good about a pleasant feeling? Really hard to give any cogent or uh, logical answer to that. What benefit is there to pleasure? A lot of our meditation practice is, is a relaxing. You know, we don't like to talk too much about relaxing because we don't want you to cling to the feeling of being, being relaxed, but it really is what's going on. You're just not anymore, not pushing away the unpleasant feelings, not holding on, clinging to, or wishing for pleasant feelings, or neutral feelings, calm feelings. You just stop fussing. Why? Because you stop mistaking. You, you lose these misconceptions that somehow, oh, that pleasure is going, that, that's great, that's a great thing. There's something good there. And so you stop clinging for craving for it, clinging to it. You stop being disappointed and wishing for it when it's not there. There's less stress when it's not there or when you have to experience pain. You relax, you know, you're, you find true, what we might call true happiness and true peace. Again, they're just words, but you certainly feel more peaceful, more happy. Why? Because you've stopped misunderstanding, you've lost that perversion of perception. So when you perceive a a feeling as pleasant, you say, I like this, I'm liking this feeling. And when you think, I like that feeling. Pleasant feelings are happiness. And if you believe that true happiness is in pleasure, you see these are the three levels. If you start to lose that, mindfulness of feeling helps with that. The third vipalasa is nicha vipalasa. Permanence. Nietzsche means permanence. And the third satipatthana, jitta nupasana, mindfulness of the mind. 
helps to see through this. And this Nietzsche is here mainly related to the idea of 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 uh, stability. The, that not only the things around us are continuous, but that our own self is continuous. The idea that there is uh, a stability and a, a lasting nature to things outside of us and inside of us. This is important because it, on a very deep level it's a part of what uh, makes us, causes us to cling to things. And you can't cling to something that arises and ceases, but it's very easy to much easier to cling to the conception of something like a, a possession or a body or the mind. When you focus on the mind, when you focus on your thoughts, you see that every experience is, is dependent on consciousness. When you watch the stomach rising, the stomach doesn't actually exist. We think of the stomach as as always there. And when you say to yourself, rising, falling, you see that the rising comes and goes. When you focus on the mind, like when you say to yourself, thinking, thinking, this is where you start to really appreciate what that means when you know, to see, instead of seeing the stomach, seeing the rising and the falling. Because the mind is is constantly changing. The only thing constant about it is the change. The idea of, an, of a soul, of a self, of some cohesion or, or con continuity disappears when you see random thoughts coming out of nowhere, coming literally out of nowhere, not out of a soul or a self or a me or an I, but random thoughts and, and conflicting thoughts and arbitrary thoughts. Focusing on the mind allows you, when, when you say to yourself thinking and so on and distracted and so on, it changes your perception of, of the, the, real un, the real nature of things as being stable and permanent. It also provides you with a new framework, uh, a, a flexible, adaptable state of interaction that we're not really accustomed to. We would much rather sink in, sit down, you know, this is where we get lazy. We want to just cling to something, you know, if I just hold on to this long enough, maybe I'll be happy. Well, everything you know, changes around you and you just end up stick in the mud, you get stuck. When, you're, when you cultivate mindfulness, you become flexible, you, be, you, 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 you keep up, you're able to keep up, to be in tune with the changes in life. They don't take you by surprise. Life changes, you're right there with it, you're familiar with change. You're not taken off guard by change.
because of how you see the mind. And this is why Jitta Nupasana is so uh, caught up in, in this one. Because you start to see how reality is based on experience, it's based on the mind. The fourth vipalasa is atta vipalasa, perversion of self. And this refers more to possession, having something being me or mine. Mine is in a possession or me is in a identifying with. Like when you feel pain and you identify that I'm in pain. When you try to control something, this is mine, right? Try to control your breathing, control your thoughts. Most, most um, glaringly, when we identify with our emotions. And so that, that, the fourth one, of course, relates to Dhammanupasana, the only one left. And uh, it, it's clear, you can see that clearly when you look at what's in the Dhammanupasana. The first is what we call the hindrances. And they're a good example of this because it relates to our emotions, our reactions. You know, when we talk about our likes and our dislikes, we, we conceive of them, we perceive them as self, we think of them as self, we believe them to be self. I, this is my personality. This isn't arbitrary, it's who I am. I like apples, or I like oranges, or I like cats, or I like dogs. I'm this sort of person, I'm that sort of person. I think a lot, I have an anger problem, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I have phobia. It's nowhere more clear, more clear than in our emotions, in our likes and dislikes, our neuroses, and all of our mental states. There's a misperception, these things are not It's not even so much about, again, it's not about theory, it's not about whether they are or are not. It's about how messed up it is to think like that. You're adding something in when you say, it's me, it's mine. There's no place there for that. When anger arises, the best thing you can say about it is, the most clear thing, most useful thing you can say about it is that anger has arisen. This is, it, it's anger. Right? When you're afraid of something, there's nothing really better or, or nothing useful about saying anything more than this is fear. Anything you add to it, most especially, and if you add self, me, mine, it's just going to cause you, at the very least, stress and, and confusion and delusion, the worst, it leads to great suffering and, and, and evil. So it can lead you to do evil things when people attack you, I don't deserve this, or I deserve this. So, and you find ways to manipulate others to get what you want based on your views and thoughts and perceptions. 
there's no room for conceit or arrogance in someone who doesn't believe in any of these things, who doesn't have any of these misperceptions. That's why they're misperceptions. That's why they're perverse, you could say. Why is it perverse to find something beautiful? Because it messes you up. It's not that God thinks it's bad or I think it's bad or people are going to point their finger at you. They might, but they might point their finger at you for things that are innocent as well. That's not the point. The point is it's messed up and it messes you up. Maybe in the opposite order. It's not even so important or so significant that it's messed up. Like if you believe that um, London is the capital of France, that's messed up, but it doesn't mess you up unless you take a flight to Paris. But what really messes you up, these are, these are things that are perverse perverse to believe in the self. It's a perverse to even think and even conceive of something as me and mine. Why? It messes you up. Causes stress and suffering. And you don't have to believe that, of course. This isn't about believing me or having some other view. But this is the sort of thing that you'll see when you practice mindfulness. So this kind of teaching is really just to clarify and, and uh, help make sense of what you're seeing. Even, even through the meditation you've already done, you should be able to uh, appreciate some of this. I mean, it should be clear, I guess. At least some of this I can see. It's about uh, helping you to direct your mind because you're going to see these things and it might lead to doubt. Well, is there something wrong with the meditation? Why am I suddenly no longer finding things beautiful or why am I so no longer suddenly no longer uh, looking for happiness or why can I no longer find myself right doubts that you have is there a self isn't there a self it's going to start make you doubt these things well, not because the doubting is good but because the things you are sure of are shaken we were sure that the body was beautiful or so on, you know. Sure that there was a self, maybe. Well, you're going to uproot anyway, any kind of... Because even people who don't have views of self still have thoughts of self, conceits, arrogance, attachment, this is me, this is mine, worries about their physical body and so on. Of course, in Dhamma Nupasana, there's much more than just the hindrances. It also has the five aggregates, the six senses. I mean, if we just take the six senses, they're very important. Noting the, noting the six senses helps you to see this is the basis of reality, not this body, not me. I am not the basis of my reality. Experiences. Seeing is real, hearing is real, smelling is real. Cogito ergo sum. The only way you can say there's an I is because you know, the existence comes from the experience, not the other way around. So some food for thought, a little bit of uh, an outline in regards to the sort of things that you're going to start to see and, and start to question 
I'm pointing out that it's right to question those things. You don't have to believe me, but I make claims. We could take it as a kind of a, um, a challenge. If I say to you, there is no beauty is not of any value. Well, you will you investigate, and you tell me whether I'm right or not. You'll you'll you'll, you'll challenge that. You can challenge that assumption, that claim. That happy, that pleasure is not real happiness. You don't have to believe me. You watch, pay attention to your your feelings, your happy feelings, painful feelings. But when you start to see it. Don't, don't ignore it. It's very important. It changes something very valuable. When you start to see how chaotic the mind is, you feel like you have nothing to hold on to. There's like there's no bottom. Don't, don't, don't ignore that. That's teaching you a new way to live. And you feel like nothing's under your control, there's no me, there's no mine, there's nothing. I don't even know who I am anymore. <laughs> don't 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 worry about that. Don't feel like something's wrong. Something was wrong. Something was wrong that these were wrong. Our our views were wrong, our thoughts were wrong, our perceptions wrong. Not not meaning we should feel guilty or feel like we're bad people. They were just wrong. They had no basis in fact. They were built on delusion, built on ignorance. That's what you'll see. You don't have to believe me. And if I'm wrong, you can leave whenever you want. It's the power of truth, right? You don't have to you don't have to convince anyone or make tell them to believe blindly. You make a claim and if it's true, it's the most powerful thing in the world unassailable. That's what one translation of Dhamma is truth or reality and that's what we teach, that's what we try to teach, claim to teach, hope to teach. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you for listening. <laughs>